0: there's nothing that you could do. There's there's no great sin that you could have ever committed that would be a barrier between you and Jesus. To learn more about Elevate, how you can get connected, or how you can support the work that Elevate is doing in Erie, visit elevatechurch.com. So today is the day. We're finishing up this series called The afterlife. And the reason we've been talking about this series is because everyone's had questions about it. And because of this theme verse right here, found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that says, God has set eternity in our hearts. So we've all had the questions about what happens when we die. And so we we talked in the first week how eternity really is a reality. And uh, what you believe about the afterlife really determines the way that you live your life. And then last week, we talked about. Heaven, and everybody wants to talk about heaven. Like, it's easy to talk about heaven, right? How awesome heaven's gonna be, that it's gonna be a place that has been built by God's hands, not by man's hands, more incredible than anything we could have ever thought or imagined it to be, but the greatest thing about heaven isn't what's there, it's who's there. It's the place where Jesus is, where God is, where God can have this relationship with you. No longer is he this distant God, but he's right there with you, and that's heaven. And it's easy to talk about heaven. And we all want to believe in heaven and the reality of heaven, but when it comes to talking about hell, dun-dun-dun, like things change. And people get offended when we talk about hell. Why is hell so offensive? We're going to talk about that. But let me set it up this way. When I was six years old, every single summer, my parents would take me to Uh, a Methodist camp in Alabama called Brasher Springs. Now, this is a down-home, like, you-don't-know-nothing-about-no-camp-meeting kind of camp, all right? There was an open-air tabernacle on the tabernacle floor. It was all sawdust. And my grandfather was a Methodist minister, so he'd go there. He'd speak there every summer, uh, this place called Brasher Springs, and my mom would always be asked to sing. My mom has this beautiful voice, and she would always sing Great is thy faithfulness. I just remember hearing that over and over and over. And as a kid, we'd just run around the camp. We'd hang out, we'd play, eat cookies, drink Kool-Aid, all that kind of stuff. And the, the springs uh, was this, this cold, cold uh, spring water that came from the ground. Now I remember we'd always take watermelons, and we'd toss these watermelons in the spring, and we would eat the watermelons. I'm not telling you that for any specific reason, other than the fact that I love me some watermelon, all right? and we keep them in the spring, then we pull those things out of there and eat this cold watermelon. So these are some of the memories that I have of this camp. But on the last night of the camp, pretty much every single summer, the counselors would grab these little kids together, and they would take them inside this creepy, old-looking cabin thing, like in the middle of the night, and they would ask us this question. I remember this like it was yesterday. Colby, my little brother, was there. What would happen... If you died tonight, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell, 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 hell? At least that's how it sounded in my mind, right? And they were well-intentioned. They were great counselors. But there was this idea that, like, I don't want to go to hell. Like, there's no way I want to go to hell. And I literally had the hell scared out of me. And I remember praying as a little kid over and over and over, God, don't send me to hell. Don't send me to hell. Don't send me to hell. Like, all the time, I would pray that prayer. And then, as, you know, as a terrifying subject, it's hell is, as a child anyway, we often teach our kids this little prayer right here that says, um, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I die, right? So we're already terrified, you know, of the afterlife and what this looks like, we have nightmares, but why is this subject so difficult, so uh, offensive to many people, And admittedly, what we're going to talk about today is going to be very uncomfortable, the subject of hell. I didn't wake up today going, man, I can't wait to get to church and talk about hell. And it's so offensive and so challenging. And one of the reasons it's so challenging is because here's what studies show. 74% of people in America believe in heaven. 74% of people We want to believe in heaven. It's easy to believe in heaven. We like the idea of heaven, but only 40% of people believe in a place called hell. So what this tells me is that we have a golden corral kind of Christianity where we're like, you know what, I'll take the Sunday bar and that thing looks pretty good, but this fish looks a little suspect. I don't want anything to do with that. Like, in other words, give me the stuff that's palatable in God's word. Give me the stuff on grace, mercy, love, joy. I love that stuff. Let's talk about heaven. We can do that all along, all day long. But I want to reject the stuff that's painful. So we receive the palatable, but we reject the more painful stuff, and it doesn't work that way. God's word is not a buffet for us to be able to pick and choose the parts that we want to believe and the parts that we want to reject. And I would argue, based on my own observation, that there, that number, that percentage of people that that really believe in hell or understand what hell is, is even far lower. I would go as far as to say that most of us in this room don't really understand or believe what hell is like, what it's all about. There was a, a young girl who was about to get married to a young guy. And she discovered through conversations that that this young guy didn't believe in heaven and he didn't believe in hell. And it kind of freaked her out a little bit like before the wedding. So she runs to her mom and she says, hey mom, you know, I love this guy. You know, I think he's the one for me, but he just told me he doesn't believe in heaven and doesn't believe in hell. And so her mom thought about it and her mom said, all right, well, I think between the both of us, we can figure this out. Like when you get married, you make him believe that there's a heaven. You take care of that. And my job will be to make sure he knows there's a hell. It's a little mother-in-law joke for you today. To convince him that there's a hell. But here's why I tell you that. Because if I was the, the spiritual enemy, if I was the devil, one of my biggest, greatest strategies would be to convince you that hell doesn't exist. Or at least, at the very least, to convince you that it's not that big of a a deal to convince people that hell's not a real place. Because if I could do that, if I was Satan, if I was the the devil, and I could convince you that hell's not a real place or, or that it's really not that big of a deal, then two things would happen. One is this, unbelievers around the world would reject Christ easily with no fear of God whatsoever, which, by the way, happens every day. And the second thing, if I could convince you that hell wasn't real, you know, that would be my strategy as the enemy or that it's not that big of a deal, is that you would be incredibly unmotivated to share your faith with anyone, which, by the way, one out of 10 followers of Jesus actually has ever shared their faith in Jesus with someone else which leads to my, my argument that most of us, we don't really believe. We don't really understand what hell is all about. So let's talk about it today. Very complicated subject, um, very, very tough. We're gonna try and stay at a pretty high level, and we're gonna look at two different times where Jesus spoke about the place called hell and two different words used to describe this place. It's found in, in Mark and Luke. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16 and then also Mark chapter 9, and we're gonna get to those. Uh, while you're turning there, one of the most basic, one of the most common questions um, that people ask is, is this right here why does hell exist? So, why does it exist? And in fact, a lot of the pushback that we'll get from time to time is well, if God was a loving God, if God was a good God, why would He create a place like hell? We're going to talk more about that, but if you've asked that question or when people ask that question, let me just say this, it reveals a foundational flaw in our understanding. It reveals um, the fact that we don't really understand the holiness of God or the horror of our sin. We don't understand how holy God is. And I'll say this, there's two two biblical reasons, biblical reasons why hell exists. One is that exists for God to deal righteously with the devil. Here's what I used to think growing up, that like hell was, you know, this place, fire, brimstone, all that kind of stuff. And that the devil was the ruler of hell. That, like, like when you got to hell, there would be Satan, and he'd have his pitchfork, and he'd have his, you know, his tail and his little horns on his he- head, and he'd get down there, and he'd go, like, ha, 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 welcome to hell, you know, kind of thing. You know, why are you here? Well, you know, I, I like country music, you know, when I was on earth, and all right, well, country music lover's over here, cat lover's over here, and you form two lines kind of thing, but I used to have this idea, and I'm not even kidding, that, that he was the ruler, and some of you thought this too, that Satan was actually the ruler, right, of the kingdom of hell, but that's not true. Hell exists to punish the devil. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with the devil and his, his, his demons. Matthew 25, 41 says this, the words of Jesus, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for who? The devil, And his angels. So one of the reasons hell exists is a place to deal righteously with our spiritual enemy. The second reason is for God to deal righteously with unbelievers. Now this is a little more difficult. But here's what the Bible says very plainly in 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1 says, he will punish those who do not know God. Who don't know God those who are far from God. This church, like if you haven't caught this already, man, we exist for people far from God. We want you to know God. Maybe you walk through these doors today and you, don't, you wouldn't say you know God, you have a relationship with God. And we've talked about this, like, like good people you know, don't go to heaven. Save people go to heaven. Bad people don't go to hell. People who know don't know God. People who are far from God, it says, and do not obey the gospel. Of our Lord Jesus. And how will they be punished? They'll be punished with everlasting destruction. And this is perhaps the worst part. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. And from the majesty of his power. Like forever. Separated from God. So this is very tough. This is going to be a very tense kind of topic today. But for the rest of our time. I want to look at these two times Jesus refers To this place. The first one found in Luke chapter 16, if you're there. This one is a parable. Uh, There are two main characters in in this story. Jesus told these parables, they were stories with points. And so let's look at the first character we find in this story, verse 19. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, and who lived each day in luxury. Now, I wanna stop real quick and, and talk about this guy. The Bible says this, this certain rich man. Now, we need to understand that he wasn't just, just rich, rich. He was like filthy rich. Like the Bible in the original text, the original Greek uh, of this verse, would, would have you understand that, that he was like, like loaded beyond belief. He was like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air kind of rich. You know what I'm saying? I pulled up to the house about. Okay, that's all right. Some of you have no idea what that is. You're so young, so young. He's filthy rich. And the Bible says that he lived each day in luxury. And that could be translated as he ate the finest foods all the time. Like, not once in a while, but every single day. Like, think about your favorite food, your favorite restaurant that you go to, maybe on your anniversary, you know, every few years, the most expensive place you can think of, or that place somebody takes you on your birthday when you're not, you know, footing the bill. Like, he, he ate that every single day, the most expensive food around. This is what he ate. And we're also told that he was clothed in purple and fine linens, Now, just to wear some piece of clothing that was purple meant that you were like off the charts loaded. Because for it to be purple, it had to be dyed in this very rare kind of dye that was often reserved for royalty, um, you know, kings, uh, the Kardashians, you know, all those kinds of people. And in fact, this fine linen was so expensive that scholars suggest that one outfit of his would have been able to feed someone for an entire year. So this guy's rich, all right? He's not just rich, like he's he's super rich. That's the first character. The second character, we find in the next verse, verse 20, at this gate, at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. So we got a rich guy and we got a poor guy. A beggar named Lazarus who the Bible says was covered with sores. Keep reading. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, so he's just hoping to to get a piece, something that would fall off, something that the servants would throw out, the Bible says the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Now that's nasty right there. But this dog was actually you know, kind of trying to help relieve some of the pain that this poor guy had been experiencing. Now I wanna stop real quick and point out No cats were involved in helping this poor guy out, which again proves my point, my theology that dogs are good and cats are evil, all right? I'm just saying, I'm just saying, it's in the Bible, you need to read it sometimes. But here's what we know, here's what we know about wealthy people in this culture is that if you were super rich like you'd eat this finest food with your hands you know bare hands often and then you just kind of eat it up and your fingers would be a mess so they would take bread like loaves of bread to clean their hands off like and as they scrub the food off their hands on both sides the crumbs would fall and the servants would gather up the crumbs they'd fall into a bowl they'd fall into the table they'd gather them up and they'd toss them out to the dogs or to a beggar someone who is who is there waiting to eat the filthy crumbs And you know what's interesting about this? Is that it never says the rich guy was a bad guy. In fact, for all we know, he could have been a a decent guy. He didn't have this guy kicked off his property, didn't make him stop begging for scraps. He was generous enough to give him his filthy crumbs, but he obviously didn't know Jesus because he wasn't living out the gospel. Because like us, when you compare us to people living in the rest of the world, he lived in luxury when there were people very close by that lived in great need. And he didn't do anything about it. And so Jesus goes on to tell us what happens to these two guys when they die. The first, uh, in verse 22, says, finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. That's the resting place. That's the temporary place. We talked about it last week. This is known as paradise. If you want to go back and listen to last week's message, you know, this was kind of a holding place, uh, more like a garden, like a park, like a picnic. So he's, he's sitting there. He's at a good place. You know, he's beside Abraham, but the rich man wasn't as lucky. The rich man also died and was buried, and it tells us where he was. He went to the place of the... Dead Now in the NIV, I believe it says Hades. Hades, that's one of the words we're gonna talk about, one of the words that we see Jesus use to describe and represent hell. Hades is translated as that place of the dead. So verse 23, he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, so you already have a little idea of what's happening. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. So we got this rich guy who's experiencing this torment, and if you read along you know, in this story, you, you'll see that there's this chasm that's separating the rich guy from Lazarus, and so the rich guy can see Lazarus. He's on this one side where he's being tormented, and on the other side, you see Lazarus just kind of living it up. He's doing great, but the rich guy's miserable, so he calls out to him in verse 24. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity, so now we see the rich guy's doing the begging, Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in anguish in these flames. Now, we obviously can't feel the emotion just by reading this, but I want you to imagine what's happening. He's saying, I'm experiencing such pain. Such torment, such anguish. Like, I just want to drop from something. Just, just give me a drop of water. I'll even take a drop of water off of the beggar's finger. I just, I just am so, you know, I just need something. He's suffering. What do we know about hell? Well, we don't know everything, but we do know this. Hell is a place of indescribable suffering. Unbelievable suffering. It's a place of torment. It's a place of, of anguish. Now, real quick, we're going to come back to this story. We're going to finish up with this story. But I want you to flip over to Mark. Mark chapter 9. To another time that Jesus talked about hell, and he uses a different word to describe it. And you're going to see that this isn't a parable. This is something that he's talking about will happen. He's talking to his disciples, and at this particular moment, he's like holding a child because he's, he's been just kind of demonstrating you know, about these, these little ones. And in verse 42, with this child in his arms, he says, but if you caused one of these little ones, having this teaching moment with his disciples, if you caused one of these little ones who trusted me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter an eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell. So there's another um, kind of description of hell. this a place of torment, place of anguish, place of unquenchable fires with two hands. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. Now, notice real fast that he says thrown into hell. Like, nobody wants to go there. You have to be thrown there. And if that's not enough, verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown in to hell. Now, it's, it's, it's easy for us to read through that, right, and just kind of high-level, you know, kind of just gloss over it and not really stop to think about what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Like, take your finger, dig it behind that eyeball, right, and like pop that sucker right on out. That's like eye guts and blood and juice and all kinds of stuff flowing from your face. Like, he's saying that would be better That would be better than to experience punishment in hell, to be punished for your sins. And keep reading, where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. I'm going to explain that. But this isn't a parable. This isn't a story with a point. Jesus is saying, hey, you commit this sin? Like, you hurt one of these these little ones that I have? Like, you're going to end up in this terrible place, And it'd be better for you to cut off your hand, to pluck out your eye. Otherwise, you're gonna end up where the fire never burns out and the maggots never die. Now, the second word he uses for hell is this word right here, Gehenna. Gehenna. This word is used uh, in 11 different verses, 13 different times in the scripture. And Gehenna comes from the valley of Hinnom, which means a place of everlasting punishment. I want to tell you about this valley real quick. Um, There were times when uh, people would worship this false god called Molech in this valley. And there's two valleys that run alongside the southern Jerusalem. There's Hinnom, and then there's the, the, I'll remember it in a little bit, Um, this valley that runs along there. And um, I'm going to be thinking about this other one forever now. But anyway, the, the way they would worship this false god Molech was to take the firstborn son and sacrifice your firstborn son in the fire. And so it became known as this, this terrible valley. And so later on, this valley that's just southern south of Jerusalem, they, they would take their, their dead bodies there. They would take criminals who had died and put their bodies there. They'd, they'd take dead animals and put them in there and they would burn them. So there was this massive fire and it also became this massive like garbage dump. And so this fire was constantly burning. This fire would, would never go out. And you know what happens to trash and garbage and dead carcasses you know, that are just kind of left in this fire? Flies come, flies land on it, flies you know, lay eggs on it, and those eggs turn to maggots. So what he's describing is this place, like literally, and oftentimes when Jesus was talking about a place, he would point. He would say, that place right over there or right over there, he would say, this is a place, so hell is like this valley where the fire never dies, where, where the, the maggot, you know, never dies and the fire never goes out. She's so describing hell. The Bible over and over talks about this place called hell. Other places it calls it a fiery furnace, place of burning sulfur, place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, it's described as darkness. It's described as a place where you're shut out from the presence of God. And what's crazy to me, And you've heard this before. Maybe you've said it before. I'll hear people say, you know, well, if I'm going to go to hell, then at least I'm going to be in good company. My buddies are going to go with me. We're just going to hang out, drink some beer, you know, just kind of chill out. That's not what hell is. Hell is a place of complete and total separation. It's a place of isolation. It's isolated from God isolated from other people. In fact, how do you punish the, the worst of the worst criminals? You put them in solitary confinement because it's utterly torture to be left alone. And that's what hell is. It's described to this place as torment where you know the rich man's going, just, I just need a drop, just give me a drop. But he realizes that the more he cries out, the longer he cries out, the more he realizes no one's ever coming. It's a difficult thing to talk about. It's very real the way the Bible describes it. So the rich man, back to our story, is in this place of torment, Hades, Gehenna, and he realized that he's not getting out. So with this moment of, of realization comes this desperation, and all of a sudden he, he kind of switches his, his mindset, and he recognizes that He's there, and it's a reality. And watch in verse 27. He says, then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least do this for me. At least, at the very least, send Lazarus, he's talking about, to my father's home. For I got five brothers. And I want you to feel the, the emotion behind this. Like, like, all right, I know I can't get out, but I got five brothers that need to hear about this, that I don't want them to come to this place. And you can just hear the, the pain And this guy's emotion, I, I love these guys. I don't want them to experience this. And he says, so I can warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. So let's look at what we know about the rich guy. He believed in hell, he was experiencing hell. His life in that moment reflected this very sincere belief in this place called hell. And I think the reality is most of ours doesn't. doesn't reflect that belief. Because if we really understood the rewards of heaven and the reality of hell, like our lives would look differently. Maybe I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. If I knew beyond, you know, what's in, what's in my heart, you know, we say believe in our heart. But if I really had this, this knowledge in my head, if I really believe this day in and day out, The reality of hell in my life, you know, just gut level truth, would look differently than it does. Because what you believe about the afterlife, right, determines the way that you live your life. So I want us to look at four lessons that we can learn from the other side. Four lessons. And first, we need to acknowledge this right here the rich man was fully conscious, he was fully aware. He knew what was happening. He had his memory. His his thoughts were were active, right? He was aware of the pain that he was in. Hell was not, he was in some sort of soul state, some sort of, you know, zombie-like kind of state. No, he was fully aware of where he was. He was fully conscious. He didn't wake up going, oh, you know, where am I? He knew exactly where he was. And the second thing, because he was aware of that, He was also aware that his eternal destiny was irreversible. He couldn't buy his way out. He couldn't beg his way out. He couldn't talk his way, way out. He couldn't work his way out. It was irreversible. His destiny had been settled on this earth. And on the other side, there was no way out. And the third thing, and I'm just drawing this as my conclusion, he knew that what he was experiencing was just that his punishment was just. Notice he, he complained about the pain. He complained about the anguish. He complained about the, the, the torment that he was in, but he never complained about the injustice of it. He knew what he was experiencing was, was just. He never said, this isn't fair. No one ever told me about this. And this is perhaps one of the greatest obstacles for so many people. Because the thought of hell, the idea of hell, you know what it does? It challenges our sense of of justice. Like we don't think this is is just. I was in Wegmans yesterday with with three of my boys, the ones that can walk. I have four, one's a baby. And we were doing the grocery shopping, you know, just helping out however we can. And we had like, like 150 items or whatever in our cart. So we didn't go in the 12 item or less line. But it reminded me of a time I did go in the 12 item or less line. And I was sitting in that line, and the lady in front of me, she didn't have 12 items. She had, like, 47 items. And it was challenging my sense of justice, right? I was getting offended by this. In fact, I don't know how many she had, but, you know, you know how you ring those things up, and every, like, boop, boop is scanning them? Like, every time she's scanning one, I'm, like, counting in my head as this thing's going off. Boop, that's one. Boop, that's two. And when it got up to 12, I kept counting, and I started counting out loud. Boop, 13. Boop, 14. Just kidding, I wouldn't do that. That would be rude. But in my mind, right, I got offended. My sense of justice was challenged. Why on earth would you get in the 12 item or less lane with 37 items? Why would you do that? Why is it that... When somebody does us wrong, we want justice. But we resist the idea that God deserves justice when we do him wrong. Why is it that finite, you and I, you and I that didn't create the heavens and the earth, you and I that didn't cast the stars into space, that doesn't hold the earth right in in orbit, like you and I demand justice when someone breaks the law, when someone hurts us, when someone takes advantage of us, someone sins against us, but we don't like the idea that God has the right as sovereign Lord of the universe to demand justice when we sin against him. And here's the argument Well, I just believe in a good God, in a loving God, in a just God, that no matter what you do on this earth, no matter what you believe in, eventually you're going to go to heaven. And here's what I want to tell you. I wish that was true. I wish that was true, that no matter what you did, no matter how you lived your life, that one day when you die, you're going to be saved. The grace of God is going to, to cover you that he's gonna save everyone, he's gonna take everyone to heaven. But there is an inherent problem with that line of logic. There's an inherent problem with that line of thinking. In fact, if we just think about that, just kind of play it out a little bit more, how loving, how just would God be to send everyone who refused to believe in him, everyone who said, I don't wanna follow you, Everyone who said, you know, I'm not going to be a disciple of yours. Everyone who flipped God the bird while they were on this earth, who shook their fist at God and said, I'm I'm not going to follow and submit to a God that wants to control me, that wants to tell me how I'm going to live my life, to tell me who I can sleep with, to tell me how much I should drink. I'm not going to submit my life to a God that wants to control me like that. Is it loving or fair or just for God, to force someone who refused to follow him, who hated him on this earth, to force them to spend eternity in heaven where we worship God day in and day out when we hated him here. That's not justice. That's not justice. And by the way, just to clarify this, God doesn't send anyone to hell. Like your decision not to follow Jesus in this life is a decision to live apart from him in the afterlife. And at no point was this guy complaining about the injustice of it. I believe he knew that what he was experiencing was just. And the last thing we see from this guy is that in this moment of realization, in this moment of of turning from here's where I am to desperation, he begged to point his loved ones to Jesus. He begged for someone, hey, I got five brothers, you know, my family, you gotta tell my family, please, please, please. He begged to point his loved ones to Jesus. You see, in that moment, he really believed in the reality and the horror of hell. And again, most of us, we don't. At least our lives don't reflect that. Do we really believe? Do we really understand? Because the enemy Has a brilliant strategy. And if I were the devil, you know, if I could convince you that hell's not a real place, or that at least maybe it's not that big of a deal, you're just gonna go there and hang with your buddies and drink a little bit. If I could convince you of that, those two things would happen. People around the world would reject Christ with no fear of God, and people do it all the time. People who call themselves believers. You know, read the Bible and they're going like, man, I want the grace, I want this kind of stuff, I want this, but no, don't tell me how to live my life. So we'll reject God without fear whatsoever, or if the devil could convince us that it's not real, we wouldn't share our faith. And the reality is, most people don't. In fact, there are those of you in this room, you've never told your mom, you've never told your dad. You've never told your brothers, your sisters, maybe even your children about the love of God through Christ. Never even mentioned it. Like people that you work with, people people that you go to the gym and see, you know, every single day, people at school. You've never once shared your faith and shared the love of Jesus with them. And I would even say, Maybe you haven't even showed them because your life doesn't look very differently than those who claim to believe and those who don't. We would point people to Jesus. We'd be desperate to find them, which is why I would say, again, most of us probably don't believe or really understand, and I'm I'm speaking from, from, from just myself. Because if I really believed it here and I could wrap my mind around it, my life would be different. Everything would be different. And I'm not, I'm not interested in leading a church of Christian atheists that, that, that say we love Jesus, but our lives don't reflect that whatsoever. That say we understand God's word and the, the the eternity, the reality of eternity and heaven and hell, but our lives don't look like that. And I don't want us to be a church where we cross that line, where we extend a hand and we share, because everyone we lock eyes with is going to spend eternity in one of two places: heaven or hell. Everything on this earth is going to burn. The only thing that lasts is people. People last. For eternity. And what you believe about the afterlife determines the way you live your life. I'll close with this. There was a a guy named um, Charles Peace. Charles Peace was a criminal in the 1800s in in Europe, murderer, and he finally got caught. And on the day that they were gonna hang this guy, Charles Peace, he had this, this meeting with a chaplain. And so the chaplain comes in and gives him the whole kind of rundown. Hey, you need to to give your life to Jesus. Because the reality is, if you don't, you know, you're going to go to hell. And he talks to him about the reality of hell. And he talks to him about the, the reality of heaven. And the moments, like before this guy goes and gets hanged, he looks at this this priest, this chaplain, whoever it was, this, this guy talking to him about heaven and hell, looks him in the eye and says, hey, do you really believe that, what you're saying? He says, yeah, I think I do. He's like, you mean to tell me you really believe, like wholeheartedly in this place called, called hell and what that's going to look like? And he said, yeah, I think I do. And look at what Charles Peace responds by saying, this is, this is so profound. He said, sir, I do not share your faith, but if I did, if I believed what you say you believe, then although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and breadth of it on hand and knee and think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of which you speak. If I believed this, if I believed in this place, as you say, my life would reflect it. Let me ask those of you that are Christ followers, does your life reflect that reality? Or are we Christian atheists? We say we love Jesus, but our lives don't look a thing like it. You know what's interesting about this parable that Jesus um, was speaking the thing that freaks me out more than anything is who he was talking to. He wasn't talking to the worst of the worst, the sinners, telling them about hell, you're gonna go to hell. He wasn't talking to the tax collectors who were thought of as the worst of the worst. He was talking to the religious people, the people that thought they had it all together. Because oftentimes we think, man, I've said yes to Jesus and I'm, I'm good. And we think that's where it stops, but look at how he closes this story. In verse 29, but Abraham said, Moses and the prophets, they've warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. In other words, go back, look through scripture, look through, through history about, about God, about who he is, about his saving grace, about, about Jesus, he's telling us. And the rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone, someone, maybe this is you, That someone sent to them from the dead, they would repent of their sins and turn to God. If you've ever heard an invitation given, and there was no point at which the the repentance was talked about, then it wasn't an invitation. Because the Bible tells us over and over that we need to repent of our sin. We need to repent, turn from our sin, and turn towards God. God. In 2 Peter 3, 9, says, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come, come to repentance. So let's do this this morning. Why don't you bow your heads? I want to give you an opportunity to do just that. I know many of us in this room would say we're Christ followers. But I want to ask you one question. Does your life reflect that? Maybe it's not just something you believe in your heart, but man, you've grabbed a hold of it in your mind and you know what it means to follow Jesus and by your life and by your actions. And you're pointing people to a God that can save them, save them from an eternal separation apart from him. And that's the reality of it. That's, That's the weight of it, Christ follower. Maybe today you need to repent. I know I do. Does my life reflect that all the time? Maybe today you say you're far from God, and you don't know God. And today you want to secure your spot in eternity. The way we do that is through believing who God is through understanding that our sin separates us from him, it's through repentance, it's through coming to God, it's through saying, thank you, Jesus, just as I am, I come, because Jesus wants you just as you are, where you are. All your issues, all your past mistakes, all your present mistakes, those of you that would say, God doesn't love me, he would never be able to love what I did, he loves you, where you are, but he doesn't want you to stay there. And the way we move forward is through repentance. We repent. So God, open our hearts today. Help us to be different. Help us to not just go through the motions of of going to church, God, saying we're followers of Jesus, but never reflecting that through the way we reach out and share your love or through having a healthy fear of God. And knowing that everything we do matters. As we're praying today, those of you that would say, you know what, I'm going to get this right. I'm going to nail this down. I've been far from God, and I want to come, I want to come to repentance. You would say, Colby, count me in on that prayer, because the way we do it is through prayer. You'd say, Colby, when, I, when you pray that this morning, I'm going to pray it with you. If you'd just be so bold to say, I'm praying that with you, would you raise your hand wherever you are in this room? just want to see who's praying with me. Awesome. Praise God for you. Man, so many people, praise God, praise God, all over this room saying, you know what? I'm getting this right. I'm getting this right. That's awesome. Pray this with me. In fact, church, you can be praying for those around you too. Jesus, today, I repent of my sin and I come to you. Jesus, today, I want to say thank you for taking me just as I am, for dying for me, for shedding your blood for my sin. And from this moment, I'm not carrying it anymore, but I'm trusting you with it, with my salvation, with my life. I surrender it all. Forgive me. I turn from my sin and I turn toward you. God, thank you for this new life. Thank you for my eternal salvation, but also for this new life I have today. Help me to make the greatest difference on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. We are always encouraged to know that God is using Elevate to bless people's lives. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, share your story online at elevateeerie.tv.